0: So interesting story, uh, I, I go to the barbershop the other day to, well, to get a haircut, that's why I usually go to the barbershop, and I, I'm sitting there and they always have some sort of ESPN something or other on while I'm, while I'm waiting, and usually it's some sort of sports thing, and I, 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 it's lost on me because whatever sports gene that my dad and my brothers have, it must have been recessive with me, I've got nothing, right, I've I'm, I'm never really got that, so, you know, I usually don't pay any attention, but um, I was fascinated by when I went there recently, they were playing this poker tournament, the high stakes poker tournament. And I thought, this is a God-ordained broadcast for me to watch because we're getting ready to do this series with the, you know, the, this gambling motif and I know nothing about this. So this is great research. I'm gonna learn all about poker and how these guys do what they do. And I gotta tell you, I, what stood out to me just right off the bat is this, I'm watching this last hand get played between these players. Everybody else is folded. It's just two players left. This one guy who looks just like a normal, regular guy, uh, and then a guy that looks like this. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this person? They're wearing a golf visor, they're not playing golf, they're wearing sunglasses, it's indoors, there's no sun. Somebody tell this poor guy there's no sun indoors, you know? And I'm I'm thinking, what is wrong with this poor person? Because this is his 15 minutes of fame. I mean, this is a national broadcast. This is when people get to see you and he's you know looking like this. Well, I do some Googling because that's the authoritative information source of our age. If you see it on Google, it must be true. Trying to find out why do people look like this when they're playing poker. And it turns out people do this because they don't want you to see their face because emotion leaks and you don't want emotion to come out in a poker game. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning about this. this. is fascinating to me. But yes, it's true, they said, that if a if person is wearing stuff like this, partially they don't want the other person to know if you have a good hand. This is always a problem with me. I may actually take this home now anytime. I don't play poker, but I play this other card game with my family and I have this little tell. A, a, a experienced card player would totally fish it out really quickly because if I get a good hand, I, I tend to just want to yell, yippee, you know? Which, no, I'm kidding. I don't do that, not every time anyway. But um, so, I the, yes, if you have a good hand, you don't want the other person to know. But you know what this is mostly for? This is mostly for if you decide to bluff the other person. Because bluffing is, bluffing is a hard thing to hide, right? But if you're successful at making the other guy think you have the cards, If you're successful at making the other person think that you have the winning hand and they have the losing hand, well, you've you've got it made because no matter what cards you're holding, you can walk away with with all the chips. That's exactly what happened on this broadcast. I have to take this thing off now. So I'm watching this broadcast, and here's the guy. We'll call him sunglasses guy. He's betting aggressively, I mean, putting a lot of chips on the table. Now, I don't know whether these guys guys play with Monopoly money or real money. I haven't asked anybody yet. But we're talking about some serious numbers, you know, putting these chips on on the table. He's betting very aggressively. But the TV tells you what the cards they have. I mean, it takes some of the fun out of it, you know, the suspense. But the TV tells you what the cards are that they have. This guy, according to the announcer, I know nothing about poker, but the announcer says this guy has a terrible hand. But he keeps raising aggressively. The other guy, meanwhile, has a great hand. I mean, there aren't a whole lot, according to the announcer, there's not a lot of hands that are better than this, right? So why is this guy with a bad hand aggressively raising? Well, he's bluffing. He wants the other guy to think, well, this guy must have a better hand than me, so I'm gonna have to give up. And that's exactly what happened. Here's this guy, you know, he's he's got this great hand. If he just plays out the rest of the hand, he wins. But When this guy keeps raising, you start to see these little drips of sweat coming up on his forehead. You start to see his shoulders raising up and down a lot. He's breathing in, you know, he's starting to hyperventilate a little bit. And then you know what he does? He takes his cards. You've seen this, right? He takes his cards and he just throws them to the table. He says, I fold. And you got to think about how crazy this poor guy feels because he just gave it all up everything. He would have won if he just played through that hand with those cards, he would have won. So I was fascinated by this. This is all new stuff to me. I thought, this is crazy. that If if, if a person is so good at deception, they can get the other person to think they have the cards. They can walk away with it all, even if they weren't going to win in the first place. Well, the announcer said this, and it really got my attention. The announcer was talking about, you know, when I'm explaining poker to people who don't play poker, and I thought, well, I'm all ears up for this. I want to hear what the guy's going to say. He says, I always tell them that when a person with a winning hand folds, it's a double loss. He said, I mean, it, I mean it this way. He said, you lose everything you would have won and you also lose everything that you've invested up until now. Whoa, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I know nothing about the theory of gambling and poker, probably never will. But I know about life because I do a lot of of pastoral life coaching and all that, and I find that all the time I see this happening over and over again. A person who has a good hand, they have a winning hand, God has set them up for success, and they've been trying. They've been trying to hold out with that hand. They've been trying to play it the way that they think they're supposed to. They've been trying to follow God, but there comes a point in time where they begin to think that they're probably gonna lose, and so they fold, and they lose everything that they were gonna get, and they lose everything that they've worked so hard to invest up until this point. So that got me really interested. I thought, well, I'm gonna look at this concept of bluffing and we're gonna see how it relates to our, our lives. And I wanted to give a good working definition because that's just my thing. I like to have a, a get handles on this thing. H- what is a bluff? If we wanted to take it and transport it out of the world of gambling and into the world of life, what is a bluff? And this is what I've come up with. I think at, at, its, at its core, a bluff is an attempt to get a winner to start thinking like a loser. Right? That's how this guy won, the guy with the good cards, if he had thought like a winner, he would have kept playing that kept playing that game. But the more he started getting these signals that he was losing, and the more he started thinking that I might be losing, he started thinking like a loser. He started getting anxious. He started getting stressed. He started second-guessing himself. Maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe the guy has a hand that's even better than mine. So a bluff is any attempt to get somebody who would otherwise win thinking like a loser. Now, Pretty much immediately, you're probably tracking with me on this. I look at this and I think, well, I know that in this world, God has set me up to be a winner. Now, I know that from, from the scripture itself. The scripture says that through Jesus Christ, we are what more than conquerors, we're more than winners. So God has set us up to win. But Satan is a master bluffer because Satan's goal, his job, the way that he can, he can take away your potential is to convince you, even though you were set up to win, that you're going to lose. As a matter of fact, his, his best shot at taking away your legacy and your potential and what you, the impact that you could make on this world is to convince you, even though you're a winner, to start thinking that you're really a loser. And that really m- resonates with me because I think as a culture, even though we have so many benefits, so many advantages today, I think we are a culture that is largely kind of down on ourselves. I mean, yes, there are some prideful people out there. There are some narcissists walking out there, but I don't think they're the average. I think that as a culture, we're pretty, you know, we're pretty down on ourselves. We're pretty self-critical, self and other critical, Right. So, I just wanted to take this in, hopefully, a productive area that we can look at in our spiritual lives, and I just wanted to ask this basic question. How does Satan get winners to think like losers, and what can we do about it, right? And and in order to do that, we're going to talk about the story of a guy in the Old Testament named Saul. He was the first king Israel ever had. For a long time, Israel had, had God as a king, but you know, they got to this point where they really felt like everybody else had a human king and, and there was, you know, physical king that could, you know, talk to them and set up physical, you know, they, they, wanted, they wanted a regular guy to be a king. They didn't want God to be a king. They wanted a regular guy. And so finally, God says, all right, I'll give you king if that's what you want. If, you, if I'm not good enough for you, I'll send you a human king. You're not gonna like him, but I'm gonna send him to you anyway. So God decides he's gonna, set call, he's gonna set Saul up to be king. Now, if you wanna talk about starting with a winning hand, think about this. God made Saul king. Can you imagine? Think about the job that you would love to do. The, 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 the destiny job, the purpose job, the job that you're like, if I got to do this, I would feel like I was making a huge impact on the world every day. Think about what it would be like if some other boss or person that's interviewing you if it wasn't that person that hired you if it wasn't your pedigree that got you in imagine if god showed up on the scene and said i want you to do this job now, that's that's starting off with a winning hand as far as i'm concerned but it wasn't just that there were a lot of advantages that Saul had he he was so set to win let me show you this the bible says there was a wealthy influential man named kish from the tribe of benjamin now kish is Saul's dad So I just want you to notice what we can, you know, we can flesh out here about his family. His family was wealthy and influential. This was a family who had a voice in this world. This was the Kennedy family. This was a family that that had affluence and influence. And when somebody was born into this family, you knew they were someone and they were going somewhere, right? But it didn't stop there. Check this out. Then the Bible tells us that he was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So think about this, more than any other man in Israel, he was the most handsome. I'm a child of the 90s, you know, so in in my growing up years, if you ever wanted to just use somebody as a reference point for somebody that everybody thought was the best looking guy, you just say Brad Pitt, right? Now, it shows how aged I am, because I think Brad Pitt's been replaced several times over, Um, but this was Brad Pitt born into the Kennedy family, chosen by God to be king. I'm sorry, I just don't know what else you want. If you wanna believe that you're gonna be a success, how much more could you ask for in terms of a, of, of a winning hand to start with? This guy had it all. But here's, here's what I wanna tell you. There's a reason why Saul was destined to underperform his resume. Some people in this world are always gonna do better than they look on paper. You read the resume, you, you see what their qualifications are, but you hire that person, and they're always gonna do better than what they look like on paper. But there's also a group of people out there who are always gonna underperform their resume. There's always some people out there who are gonna do worse than what they look like on paper. Saul was one of these people, let me tell you why. The reason that Saul was destined to be an underperformer is from day one, he started thinking like a loser. Even though he was holding all the cards, even though he had a winning hand, he thought, like a loser. Let me show you what I mean. So, um, when Samuel, who is the, that's an important name to remember, Samuel was the prophet of God, he was the, the preacher, the pastor at the time. And Samuel's job was to tell the people who God had chosen for a king. When Samuel tells Saul, you're going to be the new king, you are the guy. God has decided you're the man who's going to rescue Israel from the Philistines and be the new king. I want you to see what Saul said. He said, listen, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? A sign that's concerning for us when it relates to eating disorders. Uh, is when a person looks in the mirror but doesn't see the truth about their body image. They see something completely different than what's actually there when they look in the mirror. We we worry about that. That's very concerning. Saul had the same problem. It just wasn't about body image. Remember what, what God said about his family? God said the family was influential. What does that mean? According to God, this was a family who actually mattered. They had a voice in this world. More than other families, they actually had, they, they had the, uh, the, the power of opinion. People cared about what their thoughts were and what their opinions were. And yet Saul somehow looked in the mirror, and instead of seeing that that's what it was, you know, he said, I'm nobody. I got nothing. I got nothing. And then fast forward to, you know, the coronation of Saul. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24, you see the end of the coronation, right? This is now Saul is here, and, and, the, and the Bible and, and Samuel says to the people, This is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all Israel is like him. He's saying, Nobody's got a more a, a winning hand better than this guy. This guy is set up for success. This guy's gonna win. All the people shouted, Long live the king. Okay, let's rewind five minutes. Let's go back before the coronation, before the, the crown's going on Saul. Do you wanna know what was happening with Saul? Check this out. When, when they first show up to choose Saul as the king, when they looked for him, they couldn't find him. He had disappeared. You wanna know where he was? They asked God, they said, hey, where is he? And the Lord replied, he is hiding among the baggage. God's like, yeah, over there between the Samsonite and the American tourister, see the little, see the guy over there, that's him, that's him. You go get him, right? Check this out. They find him, they bring him out, and, they, and, and he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Now think about the irony here. God is who constructed his frame. God, God put him together. He is a tall, imposing man. When he walks into the room, he's, he's a presence. And yet he so thinks like a loser, where he thinks he's supposed to be is between these two pieces of baggage, hoping that nobody will recognize him. So I'm talking to somebody and this is your zone. You live in this zone hoping that nobody will call on you, hoping that you're not gonna have to try too hard because you feel like you're gonna fail. You're hoping that nobody's gonna ask you to do something too big because you think you won't be able to handle it. And yet God built you to be tall. God built you with a presence. God built you with an anointing, with with an ability to do amazing things. And there's a moment where we have to get called out from the luggage and we have to think, all right, am I going to keep thinking this way? Am I going to keep predicting that I'm going to lose when the truth is I have a winning hand? See, Saul was ultimately a bad king, Not, not because he was an evil man, but because he didn't know how to spot a bluff. I was reading a Gambling expert talking on the subject of bluffing. And he said, Great gamblers can bluff and win. He said, Excellent gamblers, top shelf gamblers, though, they can sniff out a bluff every time. He said, I would rather be able to see a bluff coming than to be able to bluff successfully. He says, If you can always see the bluff coming, you can wait it out and you'll win. See, the thing Saul didn't know how to do is he didn't know how to spot a bluff. See, God wanted to do something cool with Saul. Satan wanted to mess Saul up, take away his legacy, take away his potential. He had a ton of potential. Satan wanted to mess all that up. So Satan's job was to bluff him, to get a winner to start thinking like a loser, and Satan kept sending him these signals to get him to think he was gonna lose, and Saul took the bait every time. So here's what I decided to do with this message. Saul has this long life story in the scripture. I mean, it takes a long time to read. We could do an eight-week series on Saul. We would barely scratch the surface. But what I did is I I, I tried to look for specific bluffs that Satan got to work with Saul. the, The things that really messed Saul up. And, and I found three that I think are really core. And I think these are three bluffs that Satan uses with us as well. So, what I, what I want to do is, since I can't take you through the whole story of Saul's life, I just picked three little vignettes, three little pieces of story from Saul's life. I want to show you three bluffing strategies that Satan used with him. And then I want to talk about how we can fight back against uh, those bluffs and how we can actually win because we were set up to be winners, okay? So here's the first story. This happens like right after Saul gets made king. And Samuel, remember, he's the prophet, he's the preacher. He tells Saul, look, you got some stuff you gotta take care of, I got some stuff I gotta take care of, Um, but we need to meet up at Gilgal because we've got this battle that we need to, we need to go into battle against this other people. Um, And so listen, here's what's gonna happen. You go ahead to Gilgal, but listen, you wait for me for seven days when you get there. And, and after you wait for seven days, I'm gonna come and offer sacrifices to God and I'm gonna give you further instructions about this battle. So, I don't know about you, but when, when I read those passages, I think that's pretty clear cut, you know, and it makes sense because this is what the prophet, this is what the priest does. You know, they're interfacing with the people and with God, and it was his job to show up and offer sacrifices. It all makes sense. Saul's gotta wait um, for, for, these, for, for him for seven days. The, the big problem with this is that it's an uncomfortable weight. I mean, Saul shows up at Gilgal like he's supposed to, and you have to understand, like most of Israel's battles, they're, they're tremendously outnumbered. And so Saul's got his fighting men with him, and they're within eyeline. They can see this other people group that's so much bigger than they are, and they know they have to go to battle against them. And Saul has told them, don't do anything for seven days, and it's wigging them out. Right? As a matter of fact, the Bible says that when Saul was at Gilgal, his men were trembling with fear. Their knees were knocking. They wanted to, let's at least get in there and let's do something, or let's get out of here, but let's not just sit here like sitting ducks for seven days and wait for them to come and get us. So Saul waited there, though, for the seven days, as Samuel had instructed earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. He waits four days, five days, six days and six hours, six days and 12 hours, and in every single hour now he's losing guys, The Bible tells us in another passage that they went into caves. They went and hid in other properties. Some of them just went home. And so he knows that's not good, right? Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he said, look, you know what? You bring me the burnt offerings and, and, and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. After all, he'd seen this done a million times. He's king now. Why can't he do this? Well, it wasn't what he was supposed to do. And honestly, what it was... Is it's a guy who's already decided he can't keep holding the cards that he's been given. Samuel giving him instructions. This is a winning hand. Play this hand. He's got it. He's trying, but he's starting to get intimidated. The sweat's starting to build up on his his brow, and he's thinking, I don't think I can do this. And you know what he does? He says, I fold. Pressure's too much. And he does something he knows he wasn't supposed to do. How do, I know he know, how do I know that he knew that he wasn't supposed to do this? Because then he tries to justify it to Samuel, right? So here comes Samuel. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrives, right, just in time, right? Five minutes to spare. Here comes Samuel. He's there at seven days. But now Saul's already gone ahead and done this. So Saul goes out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? It's English translation. What are you, crazy? Right? You don't get to do this. This isn't your job. I told you how to handle this. You didn't handle this the way I told you how to handle it. But Saul has some excuses. He's going to justify. That's how we know that he knew he was doing something wrong. I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. It's really your fault, Samuel. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I had this conversation with myself. I sat down, and I, and I, and I said, it's, you know, self, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. We've got something to work out. I told myself the Philistines are ready to, to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. And after we had this great conversation, you know, me and myself, we were talking this over, I did what? I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. You know, what he's saying is, I folded because I felt like I had to. I felt like I didn't have a choice. Felt like I felt like I couldn't play the hand I was dealt. Samuel said, how foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. I was joking a couple weeks about the Kenny Rogers song. you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. He's saying, you didn't hold your cards. You didn't stay in there. You didn't play the hand you were given. It was a winning hand. You would have won. Look at what he says. If you had done that, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You would have won. He said, but now your kingdom must end. He's like, it's, it's game over for you, buddy. And it's not even God's fault. Game over for you because you folded. You forfeited. You didn't even need to lose, but you decided to lose. Why? Because you've decided that you're a loser. So the Lord's already got a replacement for you. So bluff number one. I told you there's three bluffs that I think Satan really likes to use with us to get us to fold when we don't have to fold, to get us to feel like losers when we're not a loser. Bluff number one is this. It's your job, Satan wants you to believe, it's your job to fix everything that goes wrong. Remember what Saul said? I was losing guys, you weren't here on time. These guys were getting ready to go to battle against us. I had to fix it, I had to find a fix. Because after all, I'm king. And what is a king good for if he can't fix what's broken? talking to a mom in this room somewhere and you are absolutely running yourself ragged trying to fix something that seems broken with with one of your kids their behavior their attitude something something isn't going right and it's not that you don't have an influence on on them and it's it's not that you shouldn't be trying to follow god to be the best parent that you can be the problem is that you've pushed it way beyond that you've put yourself in a place now where you feel like you are responsible to fix them after all you're the mom Mom can't fix a kid, and who can? Or you're at work, and you feel like your job is to somehow fix the company, right? You've got to fix what's broken. If anybody ought to be able to fix it, you should. If anybody ought to be able to fix your marriage, you should. If anybody ought to be able to fix this financial problem that you're in, you should. And you put that pressure on yourself, and you believe the bluff. It's my job to fix this. Why, why would Satan want us to believe that it's always our job to fix everything that's broken? I'll tell you why. Because if you need to convince a winner that they're a loser, you must generate feelings of failure. You have to be able to do that. You have to. And some of us, we have really good failure sensors. I, I, I'm a guy, so my, my failure sensor is, is it's, it's big. I don't want to let anybody down. I feel like part of being a guy is I have to to make it all right for everybody in my family. I have to make everything right for Wendy. I have to make everything right for the kids. None of them expect that from me. But there's something inside that goes, I can't fail. I have to be able to do everything right. I put that pressure on myself. I have to be able to fix everything. But there's a problem with that. Can I I show you this really quickly? This, This is something that I've taught married couples for years now but I, I believe it as much today as I did the first time I was going over this with couples, and that is that if you try to fix something you don't really understand, you'll usually make things worse. See, I, I have this disease. I don't know what it is yet. Probably get diagnosed with my name. It's Jonathan's disease or something, but when I go into Home Depot or Lowe's, I, I fall victim to some sort of, of uh, hypnotic thing, hypnotic spell, because going into the place, I know I don't have any business in there I don't know what any of that stuff is, right? I don't even know what it does. But I have this sort of Tim the Toolman moment. As I walk through the door, I somehow come to believe that I actually do know what I'm doing in there. And I start to think of all the things that I could accomplish in my home because it's all here. All the tools are here. All the stuff is here. And I start to think I could retile my bathroom. I could, I could put in a light fixture. And there's that dark spot in the hallway. Electricity, how hard can it be? I'm going to put in this, this light fixture here because, you know, we need it there. And, and I, I'm going to put this water feature in next to the wall. And I'm going to do this big, you know, thing in the master bedroom. And Now my wife has learned to be gracious with me uh, about this because my problem is I will get into a project, I'll get into the big middle of it, and I don't know if any guys in this room, most of you are probably way more handy than I am, but maybe this has happened to you. At some point, I find myself sitting down on the floor of that room and looking at the mess that I've created and thinking to myself, I sure wish I'd never started this. You know why? Because I didn't understand what I was doing. See mom, You don't understand your kids. You understand a lot about your kids, but you don't understand your kids completely. You don't understand your husband completely. Husbands, you sure don't understand your wives. You don't understand everything that's going on at your workplace. See, you gotta be the designer, the creator, in order to understand everything. See the, the, the person who the only person if anything is broken with Wendy, the only person who can fix it is the person who created her and, and and sustains her life. That would be God. That's not my job description, that's his. If anything is broken with me that needs fixing, Wendy can't do that. She didn't create me, she didn't design me. The only person with that job description is God. He's the one who's responsible if anybody's gonna fix it. So here's what I want you to get. This is so important, and this is this is, this would have saved Saul's career. Saul's job wasn't to fix what was broken. His job was to follow instructions. His job was to play the hand. Do what you've been told. Follow God as best you know how. See, that I, I get off the path when I think that God has somehow called me to fix my spouse. And God has to remind me, Jonathan, that isn't your job. Just like Samuel had to remind Saul, that's not your job. Your job isn't to fix everything. If you try to fix something, you don't understand it. you usually make things worse. Check out this verse. Psalm 27 verse 14. The Bible says, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Look at this sandwich. Up here we've got wait. Down here we've got wait. In the middle, be brave and courageous. That's so oxymoronic, right? Think about this. Courageous waiting, right? The, 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 you're you're going to be a courageous waiter. It doesn't really fit except when waiting means that you have to acknowledge that you don't know how to fix this. Sometimes I have to wait patiently on the plumber. Sometimes I have to courageously wait on the plumber instead of trying to do it myself. Sometimes I need to courageously wait on the electrician instead of trying to do it myself. God is saying we have gotta be ready. When it's not happening on our timetable, when it's not happening exactly like we want it to, we still need to be able to say, you know what? I can be courageous enough to wait here for God to do, I'm I'm not gonna fold yet. I'm not under that much pressure because I don't have to fix this. That isn't what God has called me to do. Okay, so truth number one, if you are a person for whom Satan really tries this bluff, I mean, he really tries to get you to believe that you've got to fix everything, right, that goes wrong, this is the truth you need to push back with. Truth number one is, some problems are above my pay grade. Sometimes we have to just really identify with that truth, and we've got to speak that truth sometimes to say, you know what, this problem is just above my pay grade. I'm just going to follow God and let God deal with it. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to follow instructions as best I can. I'm not going to fold, but I'm not going to try to, this is, this is not something that a person of my skill level should be trying to repair. I'm just going to follow God. Okay, so... That's bluff number one. Bluff number two is an interesting story in the Bible. If you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? if you grew up in church, you heard this a ton, that there was this giant of the Philistines, and this was a perennial conflict for the people of Israel. They were always going up against the Philistines. And they've got this giant named Goliath. He's huge. He's coming out, and he's he's threatening God's army. He's, 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 He's insulting God. And Saul would have been the perfect person to fight Goliath because we know this about Saul. One of his defining features is he's taller than everybody else, but Saul's doing what he does, he's hunkering down, hoping that the giant will just go away, right? Because he thinks he's a loser. So he's not gonna go out there and fight the giant. So David shows up, David's this teenager, but he's passionate about fighting back against this giant. He, he feels passionately that this giant shouldn't be allowed to talk about God this way. He goes out there, right, with a slingshot, turns loose at the giant, hits him in between the eyes with a rock, knocks the guy out, goes and cuts the guy's head off, and now the battle has been won. This huge conflict that's been going on is over. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, because it's easy to read this in the Bible and just gloss past it, but they were so close, the people of Israel were so close to being in trouble, like we can't even imagine in our current culture, because if they had lost that battle, every single person in Israel and their children would have immediately become slaves of the Philistines. Can you imagine the kind of pressure? That you might be a slave in the next minute if this goes south. Your kids might be slaves in the next minute if this goes south. That's a big deal. So you can imagine they are excited when David kills Goliath. Everything has just gone from, from black and terrifying to, to, to exciting. And they're seeing the light of day. And you know we're light at the end of the tunnel. We're, we're going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. And so what happens is you know, there's a lot of celebrating going on. And as Saul goes home from this battle, these women come out of the towns of Israel uh, to meet him, and they have this little ditty they compose. They have a little song they want to sing for him, and they've got some tambourines and cymbals and stuff, and they sing this song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, normally that wouldn't be a problem, except for something you have to understand about a person who's starting to believe that they're a loser. They They could be a winner, but if they're starting to believe they're a loser they end up sort of installing a scoreboard in their mind. And they're always keeping track of their score and the other guy's score. Life is about one up or one down for them. Am I ahead? Am I behind? Where do I stand and score? I mean, for these people, the world is full of heroes and villains. Somebody is the winner, somebody is the loser. Everything is very bipolar for them. You know, this is this person is, is, is terrible. This person is great. Everything is completely divided in two. And the scoreboard tells them everything they need to know. And what just happened? These ladies said, David's killed his 10,000s. Well, he just ran 10 times ahead of him on the scoreboard. He's furious. Boy, is he angry. He says, what's this? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only 1,000s. Next, they're going to be making him their king. And Keep this in mind. This is, the, this is the verbiage of a loser right here. See, I knew I was going to lose. I predicted this my whole life. Now I know who's going to take it away from me. It's this teenager who's going to take this away from me. So from then on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I said, the first bluff that Satan uses is that we gotta fix everything that goes wrong. Here's the second bluff. The second bluff is that you're only as valuable as people say you are. Now, I don't think these ladies had uh, a a bad intention at all. I don't think they intended to insult Saul. I don't think they intended to say that Saul had done anything wrong. I don't think they intended to say that David should be king instead of Saul. I I don't think any of that's true. But suppose it was. Suppose That was their intention. Does this song somehow make Saul any less valuable as a person? No. And yet Saul was in this zone where whatever people said about him is how the scoreboard would get tallied and if he was behind, he was angry, he was mad. The world's full of heroes and villains and suddenly I'm being persecuted. And it's not just that. Some people are like Saul. They get mad if they feel like people are putting, putting them one down. But some of us just get down. Some of us just get depressed. And we feel like we have somebody in our life that's very critical. They're trying to tell us that we're somehow globally defective in some way. Something's wrong with us as a person. And instead of getting angry like Saul did, we, instead of we just sort of close in on ourselves and we get so down because we, we do, we give in to that bluff that I'm only as valuable as people say I am. I want to show you a, a verse from... Uh, 2 Corinthians. But the Apostle Paul says this. He said, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. So first of all, we know there's at least two points of view according to what, Saul, uh, what Paul just said. There's a human point of view and there's God's point of view, so that's, that's two different things. And, and, and he said, um, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So what... What Saul is talking about, he's saying we don't measure people from a human measurement system anymore. We, gotta, we got another measurement system. We got to use a different measurement system. And it reminds me of when I first started off as an auto mechanic, which has been years ago now. It was a very short lived career for me. But when I started off as an auto mechanic in my early 20s, I was fresh out of school, and one of the benefits that the job gave me, my first, my first job being a car mechanic, is they gave me a toolbox and tools because I didn't have any. And uh, it turned out to be one of the most aggravating you know, gifts I ever received. Because I opened up that toolbox and it was full of standard tools, S-A-E, tools. And all the cars we worked on had nothing but metric fittings. So all of the calipers and gauges and measurements that, that my tools were supposed to do, all of the wrenches, all of the sockets, nothing fit I, you know, I, I would try to measure something, I would get the wrong answer. I would try to install something, I would round off bolts. And, and the thing about it is, and this is true, that when we try to use a human standard of measurement to determine how valuable we are, first of all, we're going to get the wrong answer. Second of all, we're just going to make life harder on ourselves. Because once we belong to God, once we're we God's child, then it makes no sense to measure us from a human human point of view from a human measurement he's saying look when, when, you, when you belong to Christ, you're a different person, you're a new person, so why would you measure yourself from a human point of view? Now, by the way, for whatever it's worth, sometimes people get freaked out by this verse, because they say, well, it says a person who is in Christ is a new creature, so the thought then is, I need to be, once, once I believe in God, I have to be perfect, I'm a completely um, perfect human being, I don't make the same mistakes I made before I came to God. That's not at all what the, what, what the scripture is saying. What the scripture is saying is that there is an internal change that happens that, that determines that you are now God's child, so much God's child. Let me show you what the, what the Bible says. The Bible says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Check this out. God decided in advance to do what? To adopt us. Who's responsible for you? Well, if you're an orphan as the Bible says, we sort of were in a sense, when, when, when we were lost without Christ and we were disconnected from him, then whoever you belong to then is responsible for you. So if the only connection that you have in life is other human beings that are around you, then I suppose, yeah, I guess they can measure and give you some sort of idea of what they think you're worth, I guess. But you know, once you're adopted, once you belong to a family that loves you, then they're responsible for you and they have a lot bigger voice in establishing how valuable a person you really are. See, it doesn't make sense to use somebody else's scale of measurement. You need somebody, you need need God to measure your worth because he cares enough about you to adopt you. I'll tell you about a time when I really messed this up. I, about eight years ago, my dad had a just a time of exhaustion, terrible exhaustion. He sort of hit a wall, and and we knew he was going to need to take some time away to get some rest and get some help. And so he was gone for um, you know several weeks, and. I needed to speak for him when he was gone. But the thing was, I'd only been at New Spring on staff for six months, and I was not nearly as experienced a speaker as I needed to be. I mean, again, this is eight years ago, and I was very intimidated by this. On top of all that, because of the way the timing all worked, I had 48 hours to get ready to speak, and it was on Revelation 12. I had a heavy topic, I have 48 hours, and on top of that, my emotions are kind of all over the place, because I'm not sure what's going on with my dad. And uh, I still don't know how I got through that weekend, but God was gracious to me, and I did. I got up, and I spoke, and and, uh, my wife and I were walking out of the auditorium, and we were walking, I think, to go pick up one of our girls. Now, I should tell you this. When I get feedback from New Springers, which happens pretty often, it's almost always way too complimentary. I, I I feel so blessed to get all the encouragement that I get from New Springers. The things that New Springers usually say to me are so encouraging, but on rare occasions, sometimes somebody has something to say to me that's, well, less encouraging, Um, and this, wouldn't you know it, this was going to be one of those days, right? So my wife and I walk out of the auditorium, and this lady comes up to me, and the first words out of her mouth were, you were wrong. And I said, okay. And she began to go into this long explanation of my theological missteps in in the message. And just really, the whole time she's talking to me, you know, it's already been a stressful week, and I'm tired, and and my spirit's just, well, I'm just like a balloon that's deflating, right? And I just, I just wanted to go lay down somewhere because I was just like, I, I was so low at that moment for about five seconds. Because as soon as that lady walked away, my wife put her arm around my back, and she patted my back, and she looked at me, and she said, it was one of your best. It was one of your best. You know why once Wendy said that to me? I walked on, I was good for the rest of the day because Wendy knows me, she loves me, and she always tells me the truth. My wife is a gracious lady, but she doesn't flatter. She's a sweet person, but she's not fake. She tells me the truth. And When Wendy looked in my eyes and said, it was one of your best, I thought, she cares about me, she knows me, she loves me, she's telling me the truth, I trust that. I'm just telling you, You're gonna hear a lot of feedback from people. Some of it's gonna be positive, some of it's gonna be negative. Some of it you can learn from. But there are gonna be some people who are hypercritical just because that's the way they are. And you're gonna be tempted to say, I'm only as valuable as that person says I am. But you need to push back against that because at the end of the day, God knows you, he loves you, he always tells you the truth, and he says, you belong to me. Your value is really tied up in who God says you are. Okay, so I said the second bluff is that you're only as valuable as people around you say you are. Here's the truth. Here's the truth you push back with. If God thinks I'm valuable, guess what? I am. If God says I'm valuable, then I am. I'm good with that. All right, last story, and, and we're gonna be done. So the, the, the biggest problem with Saul, if you wanna know where Saul's biggest hangup was, it was that he because he felt like a loser, he could never really take a good hard look at areas where he needed to grow. He could never really face up to his own weakness Because, see, if if you believe that you're going to win, facing weakness is just a challenge. You you feel the challenge in that. Okay, I'm going to try to develop, I'm going to try to grow in this area. But if you think you're a loser, looking at your weakness is just like looking at the tombstone over the grave of the life that you thought you could have had. So he just couldn't handle it. And Saul had all these great people in his life that could have helped him make it past some of the crazy decisions that he made. And believe me, he made a lot of crazy decisions. He had David in his life. David would have, would have helped. David cared about Saul. He had a son named Jonathan who was a great son. My parents named me after him. Um, Jonathan was, was, a, was a caring son who honestly outperformed his dad a bunch of times because he cared about his dad and wanted, wanted his dad to be seen as a great leader. I just want to break into one little dialogue between Saul and his son Jonathan because I want you to see something about this third bluff. So Saul's after David. Nobody knows how much he's plotting to do against David. Jonathan's David's friend. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to his friend. So he says, "Look, we've got this big feast coming up. You're supposed to be there. Don't show up the first night. I'll I'm trying to feel out where Dad is on this deal. If Dad, you know, is is cool, I'll I'll call you back, you come and you spend the rest of the feast with us. But if I find out that Dad's really out to get you, then you better hang you you better hang out somewhere else so you don't end up in trouble." And so David does that. He doesn't show up at the at the dinner. And now Saul's wondering where he's at. So Jonathan makes up a story and says, well, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go for we are having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. And check this out, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan because Saul had this anger issue because he felt like he was a loser. Anytime anytime something didn't go his way, he felt like he had to fix it, felt like he wasn't gonna be able to fix it, and then he got angry. So now he says to to Jonathan, he says, you stupid son of a, well, he said something not nice. He managed to insult his son and his wife at the same time. Um, And he swore at him, he said, do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now you go and get him so I can kill him. Let me tell you something about a a good friend. A good friend, if you put your weakness on display, a good friend will ask you, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to go that direction? Are you sure you want to handle it this way? To get you to be thinking about, maybe you want to make some changes. Maybe you want to make better choices. And this is exactly what Jonathan's going to do. Saul says, go get him so I can kill him which was putting his weakness on display. He's paranoid. All he wants to do is is kill David, even though there's no reason. So Jonathan is gonna call him on it. He's gonna sort of say, Dad, are you sure you wanna do this? Check this out. He says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Do you see? He's saying, but but wait a minute. Think this through, Dad. Think for a minute. This was one of Saul's biggest problems is he was reactive, but he didn't think. Think this through, Dad. Are you sure you wanna Go this route. Check this out. Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan trying to kill him. Now I want you to think about this. This is easy to read past, but this is a big deal. He intended to kill his kid. He threw his spear at his son hoping to kill his son. Why? Because he couldn't face anything that smacked of weakness. Not his own weakness anyway. Bluff number three. Satan will try to convince you that weak equals worthless. He can get you to live like a loser if he can get you to believe that anytime you see weakness in yourself, it's a sign that you're not worth anything. Saul was, I put it this way Saul was allergic to his own weakness. How do I know? Because whenever he was exposed to his own weakness, he had a reaction. You know, he did crazy stuff. You show him a a piece of his weakness, he tries to kill you. You show him a piece of his weakness, he gets angry at you. I don't know if you know somebody like, hopefully nobody's tried to kill you, but I don't know if you know somebody like this in your life that they cannot be coached because you cannot expose any weakness because the moment that they see their own weakness, they begin to feel worthless and they either lash out in anger or they totally close down and they go to another place and they, they withdraw and nothing good ever comes from it. Now, We've already been in 2 Corinthians once. I wanna show you one more thing. Paul's talking about weakness, and he's talking about a weakness that he has, which is odd because no Bible teacher at that time would have confessed to weakness in print. It was like an invitation to be disrespected. But he talked about the fact that he had this weakness, and he'd asked God three times to take it away, and God wouldn't do it. And the Bible said and Paul said that every time that happened, he said, "My grace is sufficient for you; for my power is made perfect in weakness." And this, this where we get this, these words made perfect in the original language carries forward the idea of finds it, it, the purpose comes out. It finds purpose in weakness. That God's power, when God's power meets our imperfection, cool stuff happens because then God's power can do something in our lives. But it will never happen if we can't face our own imperfection. If we can't sit with our weakness and recognize that that's really me, but it's going to be okay because God's going to help me with this. He says, then, so I'm gonna boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, what this does not mean is I'm gonna boast in you know, some sort of, he's not saying I have $20,000 in credit card debt, that's my weakness. I went and put $5,000 more on credit card debt and now I'm boasting about it. No, what he's saying is this is equivalent to someone saying I'm happy to talk about my weaknesses with you. You wanna talk to me about my weaknesses? I'm happy to have that conversation with you. As a matter of fact, he said, I would be delighted to talk with you about my weaknesses. Because he says, when I'm weak, man, that's when I'm strong. Now why have we been having this conversation? What is the the purpose of of this talk? Because we've been talking about what the bluffs are that Satan tries to to push in our direction, how we can fight back with truth. Why do we do that? Well, the Bible says this, we don't want Satan to outwit us. This is a good, good word for bluff. We don't want Satan to bluff us. How do we keep Satan from bluffing us? We just need to make sure we're not unaware of his schemes. We need to, to know what's behind the sunglasses. We need to know what's behind the facade and the, the skies. We need to see the truth for what it is. I, uh, I read a story in one of those strange but true news kind of things, and it had a picture. A picture's worth a thousand words. This guy is trying to rob a 7-Eleven. He's got a jacket over his head, and he is brandishing a finger gun at the person behind the, the counter. And the person behind the counter gives him nothing, of course, right? Because... He's not in any danger. And this, this genius who's trying to rob the store with a gun, I can only figure, he's thinking to himself, I have a jacket. I'll put the jacket over my head so nobody will identify me and I'll, I'll use my jacket to you know, put my finger in there so they'll think it's a gun. The problem is he only had one jacket. So now he's got his jacket over his head. He can't see anything and he's waving this finger gun at the, and I don't know what happened because there's no audio from this video, but I, can't, I just have in my mind the, the teller going, don't point that thing at me, you know? To a certain extent. When Satan tries to bluff us and he sticks a finger gun at us, we need to be able to say, don't point that thing at me. you got nothing. I've got a winning hand. You're just bluffing. When Satan says to us, look, you got to fix everything. At so a certain point, we've got to be able to go back. You know, you're, you're, you're bluffing. I don't have to fix everything. Some things are above my pay grade. When Satan comes and says, well, listen, you're only as valuable as people say you are, we need to say, well, guess what? The person that I care about is God, and he says, I'm valuable. Guess what? And then when he comes to us, And he says, when you're weak, you're worthless. We come back to him and say, sure, you know what, I am weak, but that's really cool because God can do some cool stuff with weak people. God's strong where I'm weak and it's gonna be all right. I think I'll just play these. I think I'll just play these. I'm not ready to fold just yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for reminding us that you have a purpose and that your strength is, is given power in the middle of our weakness. Help us to not throw in the towel, help us to not fold when you've set us up to be winners. Help us to think like winners and not like losers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here tonight.